0: So, some years ago, a somewhat new student came to me and said, I've been hearing this phrase, liberating insight. What is it, and how will I know when it happens to me? So, that is the subject of tonight's talk. What is a liberating insight? What effect does it have on us? And what is its aim or its purpose? Insight is cultivated through the practice that we've been doing here, the practice of mindfulness. And as we have all seen, insights happen on many different levels. We may have, in the course of sitting, a month-long retreat or two months, we may have many insights into psychological issues in our lives, into decisions that we may be facing, into health issues or relational issues. But the classical aim of insight in mindfulness practice is insight into what are called the three characteristics of all conditioned existence. What are they? The truth of change, the truth of the suffering of clinging, and the truth of no-self. This is primarily, but not exclusively, what I'm referring uh, to as liberating insight. Insight into these three characteristics. I thought I would take a cue from Eugene and look up the, the definitions Of these two words insight and liberating in the dictionary and so I did and it was kind of interesting the dictionary definition of insight is the capacity to discern the true nature of a situation the capacity to discern the true nature of a situation or penetration that's another meaning Third meaning, an elucidating glimpse. What does liberate mean? It means to set free as from oppression, confinement, or control. So putting these two definitions together, liberating insight might be seen as an illuminating, and penetrating seeing, which frees us from some kind of oppression, confinement, or control. Usually we think of liberation from external oppression or confinement. But in the sense that we're using it here, it's the idea that somehow internally we are confined we are oppressed, and this action of insight frees us from that sense of confinement or oppression. A liberating insight is a shift in the way that we see. We could say a shift in perception, sometimes profound and sometimes subtle. It affects how we view things, we are changed in some way because of insight. We could say that insight gives us a kind of X-ray vision, penetrating through the appearance of things to their actuality. For example, when we have an insight into impermanence, we are no longer deceived by an appearance which, promi- which promises permanence and solidity." So it might sound kind of interesting, kind of good, but how do we get one? <laughs> you know, we can't really say, okay, I'm ready for my liberating insight and decide that, you know, tomorrow morning at the 10.15 sitting, that's when we'll have one, you know, make an appointment with a liberating insight. It doesn't quite work that way. They're not under our control. So instead, on retreat, we cultivate the conditions, the conditions which are maximally conducive to insights possibly arising. It's like one teacher, I think it's Surya Das, who says, enlightenment is an accident, and meditation makes us more accident-prone. So we cultivate the conditions of concentration, of silence, of slowing down, of bringing our attention back over and over and over again to just this, just what's arising now seeing what it is, not getting stuck in a repetitive groove. Or if we do get stuck, finding out where we are grasping, where we are holding on. Also seeing where we are free, those moments of freedom which Philip talked about the other night. And to do all of this with an alert and relaxed effort, moment after moment after moment. What effect on us does a liberating insight have? I'd like to uh, give a few, um, say a few words about what some of the possible effects might be. The first is that we often experience a freeing of our energy. We are no longer preoccupied or caught up in a particular mind state or story. And with this may come an increased sense of aliveness and immediacy. We are easily present. We're no longer so captivated by the past or the future. There's more space in the mind, less clinging. There's a lessening of thinking. In fact, we may experience thinking as a kind of contraction of our energy. We see that thinking about things is not necessarily freeing. Instead, when we have an insight, we may be somewhat at a loss for words to fully describe what we have seen and what we now know. Insight brings with it a sense of peace, of well-being, and happiness. Nisargadatta has a nice description of this kind of happiness. He said, real happiness is best expressed negatively as, there is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. The ultimate purpose of all sadhana is to reach a point when this conviction is based in actual and ever present experience. The experience is of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It's like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery and for adventure. He says, your true home is in nothingness, in emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. So happiness which arises in the absence of our usual preoccupations. Here are some other descriptions which have been used to describe the effect of liberating insight. It is like finding an oasis in the desert, as if one had been traveling for a thousand miles and finally found a rest stop. It's like taking a healing medicine and feeling well again. It's like cool moonlight which soothes and pacifies the restless, tormented mind and body. It is like a flash of lightning in a dark and stormy sky. It is like the warmth of the sun breaking through the clouds. And here's a more contemporary one. It is like the relief you feel when the refrigerator goes off and suddenly you feel the silence. I spent some time with Master Punjaji in India in the early 90s, and one of the things I noticed about being in his presence was that it was impossible to worry. It was impossible to feel fear. It was impossible to have any sense of there ever being a problem when I was with him was the absence of what, of my usual preoccupations, which was so evident. So with insight and this sense of well-being and happiness, there's also an increase in faith and devotion. We, we see the uh, power of mindfulness. We understand the power of letting go. With insight also, there comes a great deal of confidence in what you have seen and and in what you have understood. Once you have seen something, no one one can talk you out of it. There's an example often given, or sometimes given, of, it's like this, you're walking, at twilight in the woods, on a path that's sort of dark, and you suddenly see in the path before you a sh- what looks like a coiled snake. It's in the shape of a snake, and it's sitting there, and it looks like it's about to strike you. And you stop, and you're completely startled, and you're filled with fear, and you don't know what to do, and you begin to look and to think about the snake and what kind of snake it might be and what to do in this situation, and on and on. But then perhaps you notice that it's not moving. So you go a little bit closer, and when you go closer, you see that it's not a snake. It's a rope. It's a rope that is coiled in the shape of a snake. Well now, once you have seen that it is a rope, nobody is going to convince you, again, that it is really a snake. Insights are like that. Once you have seen something, nobody is going to convince you that it is otherwise. Insights often occur suddenly, some like the flash of lightning in a dark and stormy sky. But it's also possible for insights to creep up on you almost imperceptibly and very gradually. Suzuki Roshi spoke about this kind of insight. He said, it's like walking in the fog. And when you're walking in the fog, you don't feel the dampness. But when you come inside, you realize you are soaked through. So an example of this might be when you go home, when you are at home next week and suddenly you realize that you are seeing differently, that you are responding differently, and you realize that something has shifted. One of the um, effects of insight on a retreat is that because of the conditions of silence and concentration we have time to integrate the insight. The Buddha once said there are four kinds of people. He said there are those people who are well-established in both concentration and in insight. He said there are those people who are well-established in concentration but have no insight. And he said there are people with tons of insight but no concentration. And then, of course, the fourth category. He said there are those who have neither concentration nor any insight. You can pick for yourself which category you might want to be in. But what he was pointing out is that the balance is important, the balance of insight and the calmness that comes from a focused and steady mind, the calmness of concentration. Without that kind of steadiness that comes from concentration and calmness, we may see things, we may have lots of insights, but in the wake of that, we may then get very busy with thinking about them a lot, and coming up for with new programs of self-improvement for ourselves, or resolutions about change that we need to make in our lives, and we get very busy without the steadiness and calmness of concentration. We tend to get identified with the story. We tend not to be able to see impermanence if there's not enough steadiness and concentration in the mind. So this quality of calmness is what helps our insight to deepen, to unfold organically. In a way that actually integrates with our being, in a way that truly becomes transformative. So that the insight is not just in our heads, but actually becomes integrated into our being. Also, with concentration, with calmness we have we are less likely to get into a lot of thinking and a lot of self-improvement agendas, and we are less likely to begin arriving at new conclusions about who we are. But rather we can stay open to not taking up so many views and opinions about things. We can stay open to not knowing. There's a line from the Avatamsaka Sutta I like a lot. It says, Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. Now, what about when there is more concentration than insight? What to do then? Then the need is to cultivate more investigation, more inquiry not using concentration as a way to avoid things arising, not using it as a way to avoid dealing with life, but rather using investigation to inquire more deeply, to ask deeper questions of ourselves, to to look more keenly for impermanence, to to see the nature of desire, the nature of aversion, to see What is it that really I want to know from this practice? To cultivate a kind of energy of investigation. So, I think what the Buddha was saying is that there needs to be a balance between insight and steadiness or calmness of mind. As the mind, the habit of mindfulness, of coming back and looking and seeing, grows and gets stronger, we begin to notice in a more continuous way the, the presence of these three characteristics of existence. The truth of change, the truth of the suffering, of holding on, and the truth of no self. Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. I'd like to read a, another definition of insight written by Nyanapanika Tara. Insight is the direct and penetrative realization of the three characteristics, it is not a mere intellectual appreciation or conceptual knowledge of these truths, but an indutable and unshakable personal experience of them, obtained and matured through repeated meditative confrontation with the facts underlying those truths. It is the intrinsic nature of insight that it produces an increasing freedom from craving, culminating in the final deliverance of the mind from all that causes its enslavement to the world of suffering. So that is the direction of liberating insight. Another way to describe this process is to say that at the beginning of our practice, our attention is very bound to objects. It is bound to thinking. It is bound to emotions. It is bound to sensory experience, to pains in the body. It is bound to what is pleasant or painful. It is bound to stories, to self-images, to the past, to the future, and particularly to the concept of me. Insight frees this bound attention. Insight allows the attention to be free and unbound. Free attention is spacious. We call it big mind or awareness. Not only is it spacious, but awareness is present 100% of the time. Like the space in this room or the sky, it is always there. The space in this room is always here. Isn't that wonderful? In the same way, awareness is always present. It is always available. The light of awareness is always on. Awareness is another word for big mind, the mind which includes everything. I'd like to say some words which are used to describe this awareness. Ungraspable, invisible, unfabricated, pure, Unstained, clear, luminous, radiant, mirror-like, empty, ever-present, indestructible, spontaneous, Vast. Boundless. Tonight I'd like to look at the three characteristics and look at each of them through the eyes of the personal self, or the liking, disliking mind, and then look at each through the eyes of this unbound attention or awareness. So we'll begin with the first of the three characteristics, which is dukkha, the truth of suffering, or the basic unsatisfactoriness of conditioned existence. The two aspects of suffering the Buddha spoke about, one are the torments of body and mind, the pain in the body, unpleasant or painful uh, mental states, We don't need to tell you more about that. You've been immersed for some time now in some of the understanding of dukkha. So from the point of view of the personal self, which is the mind which likes and dislikes, suffering is often reacted to with aversion and often interpreted as meaning something's wrong with me. Fear is present. Something's wrong with me. Pain is present. Something is wrong with me. Something I must fix. And so we get busy creating an agenda for changing ourselves. On the basis of our experience of dukkha, we make conclusions about ourselves. I'm no good. I'm failing. I'm unworthy. I'm selfish. I'm unlovable. From the point of view of Spacious awareness, the torments of body and mind are impersonal manifestations of the human condition. They arise and pass like changing weather, a display of empty and impermanent phenomena. The sun shines, the rain falls, the wind blows. It hails, rainbows appear, blizzards, tornadoes, it's hot, it's cold, weather, changing weather. Like the changing weather, each mind state has its own nature, which can be known. Anger arises, what is its nature? Fear, what is its nature? Greed. What is its nature? Joy. What is its nature? Generosity. What is its nature? Peace. What is its nature? On the night of his enlightenment, the Buddha was visited by all these hindrances of mind and body. And what did he do? When anger arose, When lust arose, when fear arose, he was able to say, I know you. You can't fool me. You are anger. You are lust. You are fear. Momentary arisings, not me, not mine. I know you, the story you tell, how you appear as momentary sensations in the body and I am no longer fooled by you. The second aspect of suffering which the Buddha talked about is the unreliability and unpredictability of changing conditions. Success, failure, gain, loss, pleasure, pain, pride, shame, praise, blame. We know things will change, but not in what direction. We never know for sure how things are going to turn out. We are, as humans, vulnerable to the uncontrollability of changing conditions. A particularly a vivid example of this, um, I remember from the big fire that occurred in the Oakland-Berkeley Hills in... Um, 1989 I think it was and I was living close to that area. We thought we might have to evacuate but we didn't but we were were somewhat close and after the fire had moved in the other direction I, I went up, it was still raging but there was a whole area that had been, of houses that had been destroyed and burned and we went up on this ridge and looked down at this devastation not much left at all. And there was one home that had been quite a large home, and all that was left were these sort of iron rods coming up out of the earth. And I didn't know what they were, but as it turned out, the man who owned the house was also up on the hill looking down and he said, see those rods? And we said, yes. He said, I put those into earthquake-proof, the home. (laughs) What an irony, huh? To the personal self, this quality of unpredictability and unreliability is very, very hard to accept. And so we get into attempts to control, to plan for all contingencies, to figure out, to think of, you know, all that could happen. The personal self lives with terrible insecurity, fear, and vulnerability in the midst of unpredictable changing conditions. From the point of view of awareness, how does all this look? Changing conditions are merely the play of unfolding karma. Awareness itself has no investment in any particular outcome. Just as the space in this room really doesn't care if this talk goes on all night or if I stop right now. There is no investment in an outcome, no preference as to what happens. Awareness is not affected by whatever suffering or changes arise in mind or body." A Tibetan writer, The earthquake cannot harm the mysterious sky, no matter how much its powerful shaking overturns and destroys. The ocean cannot harm the mysterious sky, no matter how much its turbulent waves flood and destroy. The fire cannot harm the mysterious sky, no matter how much its angry flames burn and destroy. The hurricane cannot harm the mysterious sky, no matter how much its violent winds blow and destroy. Indestructible Space The second of the three characteristics is that of emptiness of self, anatta. The question here that we play with, that we point to, that we encourage your investigation into, is the question, is there a locatable self? You've been looking, have you found one yet? We are clear that there is a body, There is a mind, and it is functioning. It's functioning rather well. But there's no one that we have found yet that we can find who is in charge of all of this. Let me read you a story about tigers. People may say that there are not any tigers in a place where they are rumored to be. But you may not feel convinced that this is true. Instead, you may be disturbed by doubts about it. But when you yourself have traced the root of self and have arrived at certainty about it, it is as if you had gone to a place where tigers are said to live. And you had explored the whole region from top to bottom to see for yourself if there were any tigers. And when you don't find any, you are certain. And from then on, have no doubt about whether or not tigers are there. Another teacher said, Looking inside yourself and not finding yourself is the finding. That's one way to open that understanding. Let's explore a little bit more. Let's think about or look at our experience. Our experience of breathing, for example. We know that we have been breathing from birth and that we will breathe until death. And when we meditate, we have more and more the sense of how the breath is breathing itself. You don't have to remind yourself to inhale. Now it's time to exhale. Now it's time to inhale again. That it's all happening by itself. In the same way, we can look at seeing. Seeing is occurring. Seeing is seeing. There is no one Inside there, making it happen, no one directing or controlling the play of color and light and shadow entering the eye and being seen. Tasting is happening, hearing is happening. There is no one directing or controlling these sense doors. Do we need to be someone special to see, to taste, to hear? breathe, all happening by itself according to its own laws. The same applies to the mental formations, to thinking and emotions. Now, this is where it gets a little more um, challenging, because we may get a sense of this on the physical level, how impersonally the breathing is happening, sensing, hearing, seeing how it all functions. But when it comes to thinking and emotions, we all too quickly assume a me to whom this thinking and these emotions refer back to. We assume ownership, my thoughts, my feelings. Everyone hears, everyone breathes, but no one else thinks my thoughts and has my feelings. Our thoughts and feelings seem very personal. They seem to be ours. But let's look at this more closely. How personal is our thinking? What language do you think in? Probably most of us, although not all, probably think, in English. How many of you think in English? Most of you, and some of you may think in Spanish or I don't know what other languages are here, German perhaps, or but most of us think in English. Was anybody here born in India? If we had been born in India we would be thinking in Hindi or Tamil or Parsi. Now, if I were to say to you think in Hindi for a few moments, chances are you're not going to be having too many thoughts. We can only think in the language that we were given. We can also only think in the words that we have learned in the language that we were given. If I don't know the word profligate. And I I really don't know this word, so I'm sure not to be thinking in it, because I have no idea what it means. So we were given language by our parents and teachers, and we were given words to use, and we can only think in those words. Also, as children, we also learned, to a large degree, what it is important to think about. For example, if I had been born, um, or if I had been born into a peasant family, say, in Ladakh, I would probably be having a lot of thoughts that I'm not having, being born a middle class American or even if I had been born in Harlem or East L.A., I might be having thoughts and even a language that I am not having, being who I am. The point I'm trying to make is that we think very much according to the values in the culture that we grew up in. We think according to the language that we were given. In short, most of our thinking is highly influenced by others. Perhaps not as uniquely personal as we like to imagine, nor as original. How many of you in the past 24 hours have had a highly original thought? Please raise your hand. Any highly original thoughts out there? Well, let me guess. Probably... Many of you have been thinking about the retreat and thinking about the weather and the retreat coming to an end and your body and the food and your mental states and the interviews and how it's going and what you're going to tell folks when you get home about how your retreat was and what, who you want to talk to before you leave here and who you want to be sure to avoid. and. <laughs> Does this sound more familiar? There is this statistic that is, has been around for some years, but it's worth repeating, that 93% of what we think about today are the same thoughts that we had yesterday. Not a lot of original thinking here. Now this is not to say there's not the possibility of breakthroughs of creative thought thought that's unconditioned by the past, incredible insights of of a creative nature, and who can say where they come from? Thoughts arise, thoughts disappear, all by themselves when we don't interfere. We have some control over our thoughts, but not a lot. For example, can you say what you're going to be thinking about at 10.02 tonight? You haven't a clue. Nobody does. Isn't that amazing? We do have some control over our thinking, but even when we are trying to focus our thoughts, they still seem to have a life of their own, and sometimes with fairly humorous or disastrous results. I'll give you an example from my own practice of doing metta during a six-week period. I was saying my phrases over and over, and one of my phrases was, May I be free from harm. Who knows how many times this had been repeated? Many, many hundreds of times, probably. And suddenly one day, I heard myself saying, May I be free from Harry and it was like Harry may all beings be free from Harry you know, it was, it was just like this thing that kept going on Harry kept appearing in my meditation and I was like who's Harry you know? I, have no, I don't even know a Harry thoughts have a life of their own so this is one view of Anatta the emptiness of self. (laughs) From the point of view of the personal self, of the liking, disliking mind, no self makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense to the mind which knows what it wants and what it doesn't want and is completely invested in how things turn out. The idea of no-self may sound really unappealing, may sound cold, uncaring, lonely, detached, disconnected, austere, Buddhist. (laughs) It may seem so absurd as to be humorous. Stephen Butterfield writes about his father. He said, When my father was old, I tried to introduce him to the Buddhist doctrine of emptiness, I thought it would ease any anxiety he might be having about the imminence of death. Ultimately, I began, you never were. (laughs) Maybe not, he said, peering over the rim of his glasses, but I made a hell of a splash where I should have been. (laughs) It makes no sense to the small mind. Another good example of our confusion about this is uh, uh, the way Ramana Maharshi described it. He said, we are like the person who gets on the train with all of our luggage in our hand, and... Refusing to sit, we stand in the aisle, walking in the place, carrying our luggage as the train moves down the track. I kind of like that image, that we think that we <laughs> we're we the ones doing it. So what about the point of view of awareness? From the point of view of awareness, the body and mind appear as a stream of karmic conditions, appearing for a while as a momentary fiction or a dream, momentarily convincing, but without any enduring substance or reality. The Buddha said, suffering is, but no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer is there. The path is, but no traveler upon it is seen. Nirvana is, but not the person who enters. The third of the three characteristics, that of Anicca, the truth of ceaseless change. We've talked a lot about impermanence in this retreat. And of course, from the point of view of the personal self, we want to hold on. We want to make things last in a way that conforms to our desire. Instead of surrendering to the flow of change, we try to direct it to conform to our wishes. From the point of view of awareness itself, we see very clearly the futility of trying to hold on, of trying to grasp the ungraspable. We see the suffering of contraction and resisting change. We also see the bigger picture. We see there is more at work than the liking and disliking of the personal self. There's an Indian saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. In the space of awareness we can rest at ease with kind-hearted interest in the comings and goings, beginnings and endings, births and deaths of all phenomena. I heard once of a sadhu, an Indian uh, wandering sadhu in Rishikesh, whose practice is to go every day to a waterfall, and stand in front of the waterfall. And at the end of the day, he bows to the waterfall. And he says, well done, well done. (laughs) What would it be like to bow at the end of our day to all the changes we have observed in body and mind, the full range of emotions and moods, the zillions of thoughts, the seeing, the hearing, the tasting, arising and passing away, and say, well done, well done. (laughs) The Buddha took the seeing of this truth of change as an inspiration to practice. He said, suppose that I, who am subject to decay and death, were to seek my happiness in that which is also subject to decay and death, would that be for my benefit? No. Suppose that I, who am subject to decay and death, were to seek my happiness in that which is beyond death, in the deathless world. Would that be for my benefit? Yes. We too can use the seeing of impermanence as an inspiration to discover that which is deathless, that which is not subject to birth and death. Seeing the three characteristics in every moment and reflecting in this way is a doorway to liberating insight. To see every moment is transitory, every moment of grasping as ultimately unfulfilling, every appearance without any self-existence. Seeing the three characteristics over and over loosens our tendency to fixate, to construct and solidify our personal version of reality based on what we want and what we don't want. we begin to see and relate with the bigger picture and find we can rest in the knowing itself. Discovering that true abiding happiness is not an attribute of getting everything we want, but of seeing with the eyes of wisdom and compassion and of resting in spacious awareness. I'd like to end with a beautiful, um, not exactly a poem, but it's from the Upanishads. Two birds, one of them mortal, the other immortal, live in the same tree. The first one pecks at the fruit, sweet or bitter. The second looks on without eating. Thus the personal self pecks at the fruit of this world, bewildered by suffering, always hungry for more. But when she meets her true nature, the source of creation, all her cravings are still. True nature is everywhere, shining forth from all beings, vaster than the vast, subtler than the most subtle, unreachable, yet nearer than breath, than heartbeat. Eye cannot see it, ear cannot hear it, nor tongue utter it. Only in deep absorption can the mind, grown pure and silent, merge with the formless truth. She who finds it is free. She has found herself. She has solved the great riddle her heart forever at rest. Whole she enters the whole. Perceiving the truth, she becomes the truth. She passes beyond all suffering, beyond death. All the knots of her heart are loosed. Let's sit together, please.